Welcome to episode 57 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. Surprise, Shane, I started recording it. <laughs> Without so, a countdown, you're a crazy man. <laughs> I'm Chris, who's very trigger happy today, clearly, and we are amateur astronomers and do astronomy just for the fun of it. And we do this podcast to share that fun with everybody out there. How are you this late morning, Shane? Oh, good, good. Yep. Um, long weekend. Can't complain. Good stuff. So what was the first thing you ever looked at through a telescope? Saturn. Or no, maybe, wait a second. What was the first thing you ever looked at through a telescope that you own, that you, you finally went out, you bought a telescope. Where did you first point it? <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. I'm almost embarrassed to admit oh, it, but um, <laughs> this could go badly. Sorry. I should have yeah, prepped no. you with this. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Uh, I, I don't mind sharing. Um, so I, my first telescope was an eight inch Dobsonian Skywatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, great, great little telescope. Um, I wasn't a member of the local club or anything like that. I had done some research online about what to buy and settled on this. So I ordered it, it arrived, I set it up. But I was lit like, so this is the embarrassing part. I was literally too scared to use it because I'm like, well, I got the telescope, but now like, how do I use it? What, what do I do next? And I, I really hadn't researched that part of it. You know, oh, yeah. like what is there to look at in the sky and how do I determine if that star is a star or a planet? And uh, so it actually sat in my living room probably for a couple of weeks. And then oh, really? finally uh, the moon was out and I thought I'm taking out this telescope tonight. And yeah. uh, so my first target was the moon and I was uh, blown away. And then, you know, I think Jupiter was actually out that night too and swung it over to Jupiter and, and just fell in love with the whole hobby very quickly. Nice. Very yeah. cool. Very yeah. cool. How about you? So the very first thing I ever looked at, well, my first telescope, it arrived right between the March 1997 opposition of Mars and Comet Hale-Bopp which was uh, prominent in the sky. So I've been doing astronomy for a few years before that because I went and I, I went the, the poor person route. I, did, I didn't have very much money. And so I had uh, done lots of naked eye observing for several years and then had graduated to the binoculars. Somebody gave me a pair of binoculars and Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson, which is the book we recommend uh, for people getting started. And I would uh, eventually spent uh, money on getting those binoculars tripod mounted and a binocular adapter and uh you know eventually had decided that i should have a telescope especially with mars and and hail bop in the sky that these were two uh two things that i just at that point i was like i just gotta see them right you know better than what the binoculars would show uh so ordered the eight inch f6 no sky watchers then this was just before sky watcher was a thing and uh and so it was a Celestron eight inch F6 and I went out and it was like really, really bad conditions. Um, it was windy, it was cloudy, but there was big sucker holes, you know, big gaps between the clouds. And uh, every once in a while, and Mars was, was very high, very s- similar, I think, to, to where it is now, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, those large holes would pass uh, in between me and, and the red planet. And so I was like, I can do it. I can do it. And sometimes you could even see it through the clouds. Cause you know how bright it is these nights. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I set up in my driveway and, uh, it took a lot of messing around, but I was able to, to get Mars in there. And, uh, I was able to see something 
more than one thing on the surface of Mars. The the first thing I I saw was was what we know now is a Sturtis Major. I thought it was the Mariner Valley. That's that's how much I knew at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which you actually can't really see through a telescope. Um, but Sturtis Major is is that large dark feature, and then I could see uh, uh, one or I thought I saw both the polar cups, but maybe I just saw saw one of them, but man, I couldn't believe it. You could see polar caps on Mars. You could see these surface features on Mars. And, uh, but you know, the one thing that struck me was what you see on Mars is not really what is on Mars. And, and I found this, you know, at the time I was studying philosophy. So, so this, I found just this incredible, like conceptual thing, because uh, by 97, you know, several spacecraft had gone by and there was, there was other spacecraft either on their way or going to be on their way very soon, putting, putting these rovers on Mars. That, that program was just getting going, uh, really still on the drawing table maybe. Um, but, you know, we, we knew like of the Mariner Valley and the craters and the volcanoes because of the Vikings and the other spacecraft that had visited over, over about the 20 or so years prior. Um, but what you actually see through the telescope is not those things. You see what's called uh, these albedo features. So I was really fascinated, became really fascinated in uh, what I call the two faces of Mars. And I, I don't know if you're watching my screen. I'm sharing uh, my document with you. Yeah, well, yeah, I, yep, I'm following along. And I've got these two faces. So there actually are, are several faces on Mars. There's the the, it looks like uh, a monkey face, almost looks like something out of the planet of the apes, um, which was basically a mesa or like a butte. And we have buttes here. And the, the, when the, I think it was the, one of the Viking or Mariners had flown over, um, they had snapped this picture and it looks just like uh, somebody had carved out uh, a face onto the surface of Mars, sort of looking uh, back to, or towards earth. But it turned out it was just like a trick of the, of the sort of lighting uh, at the time in the, the particular surroundings. It's not really a face. It's just um, some depressions and, and that that, uh, that appear like that when, when the sun is angled just right. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the giant smiley face, which again is just coincidental. It's just a, a giant impact feature. And then there's like a big uh, couple uh, ejection points uh, throughout that face or throughout the crater that that make it look like it has like two eyes and, and a smiley face on it. So when I talk about the two faces of Mars, uh, if you Google that, these are, these are the things that come up. Um, but this is not what I'm talking about. Well, and, and the first phase, or sorry, the first face that you referenced um, is, is probably one that, you know, if, if people were familiar with any of the faces on Mars, it's the first one. Because mm-hmm. um, it's been around forever. And, and I think it caused a bit of a stir... Um, when this photo was first discovered that like, Hey, there's this, you know, very human like face structure on Mars. Yeah. Was it created by, you know, intelligent life? Um, Really what that is similar to is the lunar X that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we almost had an episode dedicated to that. And it just, it's like a, it's a by chance feature that if, you know, you catch it at the right time with the light and the shadowing, it takes on a different appearance than what's actually there. Yeah. And, and to answer your question, were these faces created by intelligent life? Um, the answer is yes. It's just they were created by uh, people on the surface of our planet looking at the surface of Mars <laughs> and, and determining that, that this is what they are. But, but they're just sort of chance um, things that, that have occurred. But we're not really talking about that. In, in a way, we are because we're talking about how 
how we interpret these surface features from very far away. And when we're looking through small telescopes, we're really just going to see the phase uh, of Mars and we're really just going to see the white polar caps. Um, and, and pretty much everything else is this distinction between uh, bright areas and darker areas. Now, you'll, you'll sometimes glimpse stuff just, just below that and we'll, we'll get into this. But I call this sort of the two faces of Mars, the surface, the actual surface features that we're familiar with from like the rovers or from uh, the Mars orbital uh, surveyors that have, that have gone around it. I think Mars global surveyor uh, and some of the other ones and the albedo features, the differences between the, the light and the dark features uh, that we see uh, when we look at it with, with small telescopes. So the very first person um, to sketch anything uh, on the surface of Mars from Earth uh, was Christian Hugens in 1659. And, and you referred to this uh, before the Certus Major, I think in, in previous episodes. And uh, so this is this dark feature. I think it's actually, it almost, in my mind, it, it kind of looks like, well, you were saying once it looks like the jaws of an alligator or something. Is that, am I capturing yeah, that correctly? 100%. Um, what I, what I made an analogy to, um, through that was just last week when I had that observation and yeah, the, um, I guess it would be the Western edge of it. Um, the sort of a, like a, an indentation. And to me, just like with some of the irregularity, I, I felt like it, it looked like the jaws of a, like a gator and then a little bit like of the body flowing behind it too, actually. Yeah. Like the, uh, Sinusabius looks kind of yeah, like yeah. the body leading up into uh, Certus major and Certus minor. So that the big, why dark part is Certus Major and the small little part that you were observing there is Certus Minor. And then that, that trailing component is Sinus Sabius uh, in amongst some, some other features. And in, and in the mouth, where, where I think you delineated the mouth, that's actually Libya, which is a, a low-lying uh, desert region. Now, originally, uh, it was believed that this was uh, like plains, kind of like we have the plains around uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, where we live. Um, but it was the Mars Global Surveyor that actually determined, and I think you actually maybe even refer to this once, it used to be called Certus Planum or Certus Plains, right? Okay. Um, but it, in, in more recent times, say in the past uh, couple decades, it's been determined that Certus Major is actually a low-relief shield volcano, kind of like some of those large ones that you've been on in Hawaii. I know you've been to Hawaii a few times as well. Um, I think you've actually spent more time on the, the sort of... Uh, volcanic areas than, than where I was. But, uh, but that's really the type of material that's there and it's kind of uh, risen up. And because it's a little bit higher, it's made of this basaltic rock, uh, it has relatively low levels of dust. And so this area ends up being uh, darker than the surrounding, the surrounding areas. So it wasn't really what they thought it was uh, originally. But uh, what we're seeing here is the difference at the eyepiece um, between the actual surface that we now know about because of the space missions that have been there uh, and, and the battle between that actual surface and human perception, uh, the atmosphere of the Earth, and this, this planet Mars, um, which I think is like something like an average of 54 million uh, or more light years, or sorry, 54 million kilometers uh, away, even at its closest uh, to our planet. So, but Hugens, so... 
I've got a couple of these, these images up here now. I'm trying to make them a little bit bigger for you. Can you see them there? I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I'm following along just on the, sure. the show notes. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Another window, yeah. So, so Hugens had these aerial telescopes and uh, that's what he was observing with. And I think these things are quite, quite fascinating. So he'd have uh, the lens uh, connected to something that is, is sort of akin to a telephone pole and then he had this, uh, this sort of string to help guide it. And then he had his eyepiece on maybe something like a little tripod, uh, you know, 20, 40, maybe 100 feet away. Um, and so typically the best results he had were, were with telescopes in the 60 to 70 millimeter or, or about two and a half to, to just under three inch range. But apparently he and his brother had made telescopes up to eight inches that worked like wow. this. That's, that would be a, an incredible thing to see and, and to try to use. I, how, I can't imagine it functioned very well, though. <laughs> so, so if you look, I have two images up of this. One kind of shows something that looks like, basically, it looks like a flower pot. Um, and if you, if you think about a telephone pole with kind of like that cross beam where the wires run, this is not too dissimilar from what he had. And sitting on that cross beam was like a flower pot uh, on an say an angle, depending on where he's looking in the sky, and then like a wire running back to a tripod where he's standing on the ground, and he's kind of trying to sight through it. Um, I can't imagine what that would be like to use. That seems just ridiculous now. Um, and that was like a small version. The bigger version was multiple times larger and uh, almost looks like, uh, like a ship's mast with the, uh, with the boom pointed at, at an angle, depending on where he's looking. And if you look in that second image, can you see that second image there that looks like has all those circles running across it? Yeah, yeah. And, and what's sort of interesting about this is he would, and I'm not sure why, but he'd have to get up there. Uh, I think the light kind of could focus at different points. You can actually see that there's like a person carrying a ladder towards the bottom. And a, apparently for whatever reason, this, this person would let him up and then, then kind of skirt away with the ladder, leaving him stranded up on this apparatus. <laughs> uh, and these were some of the bigger ones, but, but the best ones were these little ones that were on more like a telephone pole type uh, apparatus, but he was able to make some, some pretty decent uh, observations with that. Yeah, the neat thing when we talk about some of these old telescopes, um, and you read more about the observation, um, but then when you think about the equipment that they were using to get that observation, it's nothing short of incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you think about how good our gear is today, um, you know, the observations that we're capable of are pretty outstanding, I think, uh, just mm -hmm. due to equipment working so much better. Um, but, you know, the determination and, and I guess probably even some of the observing ability uh, of these folks uh, a long time ago is really uh, incredible. And I enjoy, I enjoy seeing some of these like early, early contraptions that were, you know, I guess the, the beginning of the telescope essentially, because mm -hmm. um, it just is so bizarre to see these when we think about what a telescope looks like today. Yeah. And kind of going back to Mars a uh, little bit, I'm focused here on this, on this uh, picture that shows uh, a nearly full moon um, with Mars. The morning uh, before we were making those observations, the really, the really good night. Um, anyway, and Murray Paulson had posted this to our list, sort of that we're on there in the Astro Sketchers, I think. Um, sort of making fun of that, uh, you know, Mars will appear as large 
as the full moon. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, so this, this is that, that myth or, or that, uh, I don't know what, what you want to call it, but it's, it's uh, this, this incorrect uh, instruction to the public that if you go out on this certain night, um, when the moon and Mars kind of get as close as they can be during a Mars opposition, Mars will appear as, uh, as, as large as the moon does uh, in the sky. Mm-hmm. So do you know where this comes from? So I actually figured this out. Eh? I don't. I, I remember like in, I think at the, the 2004 opposition, this was making its rounds on social media at that time. Mm-hmm. The moon and Mars would be, you know, the same size in the night sky and it will be incredible. Um, and then it just seems like every Mars opposition since it resurfaces, but I, I, that's all I really know about it. So I think anyway, now I, I should really send this off to, to, I think it's Snoops or Snopes that, that likes to do these, these debunkings. Now, although, although somebody clearly made, made an error, where, where does that error come from? If you actually, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you bought the other copy of Webb's, um, that, that celestial handbook for common telescopes, but the pink copy, the copy on the planets in there, in the Mars section, he actually talks about um, through the telescope, uh, during Mars opposition, that Mars will appear through the telescope like the moon does uh, to the unaided eye. Should should have the quote here in in this bit, um, but it's it's really really close to how that internet uh, meme is uh, is detailed. And so I think that perhaps somebody was reading this at some point in time, and perhaps had either misquoted or had quoted uh, Webb. Uh, and then, and then this had gone out and then somebody had simply just grabbed that snippet somewhere and then had misinterpreted, which is probably, uh, likely what, what's happened here. So it, it's pretty common for stuff with Mars to get kind of, uh, re-jostled around, you know, as you know, I was, I was starring in the local access cable television five minute bit on the retrograde of Mars, um, which they had kind of gotten confused with the, the opposition of Mars. And, and it also uh, requested an astrologer um, and, and it got me instead. So that naked eye view of the moon, though, um, if you think about it, uh, it displays these soft, rounded forms. And basically all we're seeing is the bright highlands and impact regions in contrast with the lava plains. Uh, and these are really at the threshold vision and all we're, we're really glimpsing is perhaps just uh, just this contrasting between the craters and these different structures but if you view it if you view the moon through any instrument even the smallest pair of binoculars um, you're gonna it's gonna reveal that those uh, light and dark areas these are just a synthesis of the features that are just below uh, your ability to detect so these naked eye observations are what are they what they're doing is they're demonstrating these albedo features. These are the contrast features versus the actual surface features, which you're able to see uh, through an optical device. Now, Mars is sort of like one step removed. With the unaided eye, you just see it as a bright orange pumpkin dot in the sky right now. It's really bright. Through binoculars, I can just barely get a disc. Uh, but I can't see anything much beyond, uh, beyond a disc there. And then through the telescope, you're really just getting uh, these sort of soft contrast features of bright and dark areas, but you're not really able to see any, any craters or anything. 
Um, but the first uh, individuals who tried to actually map these out uh, were named Madler and Beer, or Madler and Beer. And they created this map in 1840 using a 95 millimeter telescope, which I really, I really like this map uh, because they're using telescopes in the same range as, as the ones that, that we're using. In fact, I use a 100 millimeter telescope and theirs was only just a little bit smaller. And, you know, they made some surprising uh, detailed observations. You can kind of clearly see the Sirtis major feature, um, although they're kind of drawing it sort of pole on, I guess, um, which is, I think, a little bit odd. Um, you know, you can see a variety of sort of that Sinusabius and and Hellas and, and some of those other uh, features that, that are on Mars. As well, the, the telescope they were using, this is quite fascinating, was actually made, not a Fraunhofer design, but actually made by Joseph Fraunhofer uh, a few years before having, having died, I think uh, a decade or so earlier. Um, and what they did is they end up labeling these albedo features. And of course, they, they didn't know they were only seeing albedo features uh, at at the time, but it gradually became clear over, over the uh, following decades, and we're going to walk through that a little bit, um, that they weren't actually seeing the surface of Mars. Up to that point, up to a certain point, really, and that point being when spacecraft visited, it was thought that, uh, that they were really seeing very much the, the surface directly of, of Mars. But um, after Modler and Beer, a uh, guy in Bristol uh, Nathan Green came along and he created this. And I think this is actually the most beautiful map, this 1877 uh, map. And I actually put a link in uh, to an academic article here uh, for you, Shane, from the uh, Journal of the uh, British Astronomical Association. And it, it details his, and I think you'll find this to be a very interesting read. And he was observing with a, a four and a quarter inch and a nine inch refractor. And he also observed with 13 and 18 inch reflectors. And I really think that this map here, this really shows what the amateur astronomer uh, could hope to see. Um, what else? He used uh, a naming convention by Richard Proctor and uh, he was more creative. Proctor was more creative uh, with his naming uh, convention and he paid respects to past astronomers, uh, like including Dawes who made some, some early observations of Mars and uh, of course famous for the Dawes limit in, in separation. You're a, a multiple star observer. You're probably familiar with Dawes uh, limit. And, uh, and, and the one thing I really like is he included Herschel and Fontana. I, I really think Fontana doesn't get uh, the credit he deserves for being an early telescope uh, creator, but uh, sort of oddly enough, if you look in the history of astronomy, you find Fontana's name pop up uh, many, many times. And the really cool thing, the really thing, the thing that I like most about Proctor's naming convention is that he titled an area very optimistically as the Beer Sea. <laughs> of wow, course, get, get me there. <laughs> of course, named after the, uh, the early observer. But I suppose he could have named any feature the Beer Mesa, the Beer Plain, the Beer whatever, Beer continent. I think there might have been a beer continent at one point in time, but I like the fact that that there was a, a beer sea, and I'm I'm kind of disappointed that this didn't uh, this didn't pan out. So around the same time, this is when we get to this business of of the canals, and most people are probably uh, familiar with with the story of of the canals. But 
the observer uh, Schiaparelli, uh, observing in the Brera Observatory in Italy, he published his own nomenclature, his own naming conventions, and he was using this, this really beautiful MERS 8-inch, or it's actually just about a 9-inch, it was I think around 218 or 220 millimeters um, refractor. And I've even put a little image of it there. You can actually go um, to the Brera Observatory these days and, and tour it. Um, and they've, they've subsequently refurbished the telescope in recent years. I guess it, it looks quite nice according to the pictures online. Um, but when Schiaparelli drew Mars, he, he drew it with all these sort of crisscrossing, uh, interconnecting features. And uh, he interpreted these, uh, of course, to, to be the canals uh, of Mars. So have you ever seen the canals on Mars? Well, in, you know, photographs, I suppose, or drawings, old sketches. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought that maybe one of my recent sketches I sent to you, maybe, maybe, maybe looked a little bit like canals, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that. Um, yeah. You know, the, when I think of canals, like I, I think of sort of very narrow features, you know, as opposed to like Sirtis Major and, and kind of more common stuff that we see. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't say in any of my observations, I've seen granular detail like that. So one thing I notice is sometimes when I'm doing a rough sketch and, and uh, here last week, I did a whole pile of really rough sketches and then I, I brought them together into a final sketch. But I noticed that those rough sketches, although at the eyepiece, I wouldn't have said they look like canals. Uh, when you actually brought them inside, if I had shown them to somebody else, they could easily have thought they were canals, but I was okay. just simply trying to sketch out the general features. Um, one of them even looked like a giant trident. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so it was really a uh, guy by the name of Percival Lowell in the late 1800s and very early 1900s uh, who really ran with this idea of, of the canals. And, and Lowell was a very wealthy uh, Bostonite. And uh, he actually ended up traveling the world to, to try to find a pretty good observing site and settled on, uh, uh, on an area that would be called Mars Hill, just outside of uh, Flagstaff in, in Arizona. Um, and he's a bit of a polarizing character in the history of, of astronomy and especially Mars. Uh, you know, he really ran with the idea of canals and life on Mars. Um, and he really uh, inspired, I think, a lot of people to, to, you know, really take up astronomy or, or to look at the sky or get telescopes. Um, sort of in retrospect, though, a lot of people uh, sort of shoveled on a lot of criticism uh, on him for his sort of self-promotion and, and lack of uh, scientific method. Um, but, you know, like personally, I really like the dreamers. <laughs> I think I'm more in the dreamer camp uh, than in, than in the science camp. And, uh, I really like the fact that he inspired so many people and he built this observatory, um, and he really made it open and accessible to the public as it remains today. It's, it's this, uh, this Lowell observatory is a fantastic, uh, outreach facility and, uh, anybody can go there like any day of the week, just about walk in, you can look through the telescope, you can make arrangements to look through the telescope. I, I haven't done it. I've always wanted to do that. It's a 24 inch Clark refractor and, and they stop it down. And, you know, a lot of his theories didn't, didn't pan out and were pretty fanciful. He was definitely a dreamer more than a scientist, but uh, I kind of like that, you know, we, we have a lot of grounded science and uh, somebody who, who really just ran with the 
sort of the romance of, of astronomy uh, in amongst uh, in amongst all kinds of great science. I think there's I think there is some room for that, um, and certainly uh, the, the science in the end has has panned out as as the, there didn't end up being any of these canals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely lean towards the uh, the non science side of the hobby as well. I, I like the romance of it all, and and uh, the dreamers always appeal to me too. Yeah, and and in the end, we know that that there wasn't. Uh, you know, sort of little green men, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, they, they weren't trying to funnel um, water from the poles of, of Mars to satisfy a thirsty desert uh, population. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a neat story. And, uh, you know, I think he really did inspire uh, so many people uh, to go and look. But kind of rounding us, grounding us back down in reality was, was an old fuddy-duddy E.E. E. Barnard at the Lick Observatory. And I say that in, in total just E.E. E. Barnard is my favorite, if perhaps my favorite, if I think he is my favorite uh, astronomer. Um, having been an amateur and then become a professional, uh, he pointed the Lick 36 inch uh, at Mars and he never saw any canals. And uh, Barnard is arguably, maybe not even arguably, uh, perhaps the best visual observer of all time. And so if he wasn't able to see the canals, you don't get any canals. There. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sort of like end of story. You know, he, he made discoveries that uh, were only later well confirmed with, uh, with spacecraft and stuff like that decades or a century later. So he was just on a whole, whole different level. He actually made some sketches and they only have very, very few of these sketches, but he was able to resolve things down to like crater level surface detail uh, on Mars using, using that instrument uh, and do, uh, do some pretty good diagrams. Um, I wasn't able to go in and look through the 36 inch I had intended to. I did go up to Mount Hamilton and look at the stars just on my own uh, okay. when I was living in California and uh, it's quite the place. And unfortunately, Barnard's house burned down last month. Uh, oh in the, yeah. in the wildfires no. yeah unfortunately so it is kind of sad and it is you know it is very sad to see the burned hillsides uh that, that i've been up to um that is just just a magical and very beautiful place uh in california but uh sort of moving along you know barnard did those observations and really said there's no there's no canals there and he was among the first to to really draw that line in the sand uh, and then people like uh, E.M. Antoniadi, um, who really took over the reins as, as the lead Mars observer in the, in the early 1900s, uh, he looked at it during uh, subsequent oppositions, uh, and in particular the 1909, which was a good opposition. Uh, he determined that indeed they were, they were an illusion. Uh, he was using a slightly smaller refractor than, than Barnard in a in a good spot, but not as good as, as Bernard's 36 inch in California. He was, uh, Antoniati was observing in Paris using the 33 inch Moudon uh, refractor there. And, uh, and I think the Paris spot, I've, I've actually also been to the Paris observatory. Again, I was not able to gain access. Um, that's a very difficult place to get into apparently. And uh, I, I did kind of was, uh, was able to kind of suss out the grounds of it. Uh, for observing and that probably well I know probably but that's not as good a spot to observe it's not Hamilton where Barnard was uh, but even Antoniati there eventually concluded the canals are are an illusion 
they uh, they simply uh, don't don't exist. Um, and he was really Antoniadi was really the last great observer of the visual age, you know. And then we kind of uh, get into the the mid nineteen hundreds uh, as we're moving along to actually putting spacecraft on there. Uh, and that really became the focus, you know, what would the spacecraft see um, since so many things had, had been thought to be seen through the telescope visually, um, you know, what, what would the spacecraft see? Um, and when the spacecraft arrived, they started uh, doing imaging and that, and then it, you know, it became a very confusing time because um, you have both the old albedo features uh, and then you have the new surface features. And so they had to figure out a way to kind of sort of bridge that divide. And, and the guy they charged with doing this is a fascinating character. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him before. I have a book by him. Uh, his name is uh, Adwin uh, Dolphus. And he was observing there at the uh, Pictomidi Observatory. And I put a picture there of Dolphus and, and the observatory. I'm not sure. Can you see those? Yep, yep. And he's actually in a uh, an, an early spacecraft. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what, what he's. That? <laughs> that's what he is sticking out of. And they flew that up into the stratosphere, and he made observations from up there. I think the guy was unbelievable. He's he was an amazing. He passed away only uh, only ten years ago or less. And uh, and so he observed out of the uh, out of the Pictomedi, which which is in the I think it's in the French. Uh, anyway, it's in the French Pyrenees, the French Alps. I, I haven't been there. I've been to that general area. That general area is uh, astounding for doing visual observing. And, and this place is very publicly accessible. I think they do public nights. And uh, I see lots of photos of people going up there uh, to observe, uh, which is really cool. And sort of in the strange sort of twist of astronomical history, the Pictomedi uh, location for that observatory was actually originally scouted out by none other than Percival Lowell, it turns oh, out. So it's this really, really weird thing where when he was traveling around the globe to, to pick a spot, that was one of the spots that he selected. Um, and I think it's like not like a big secret or anything. When you have a good observing spot, you don't use it, you pass it along or, or discuss it with others. Maybe he got the original idea from French observers that this would be a, a good location. And certainly it has proved out that observatory is still a, a live and active and going concern today. Uh, would love to get up there uh, sometime, but uh, uh, Dolphus, he ended up taking uh, a mixture of Antoniadis and Chaparelli's naming conventions and then adopting them uh, to what the spacecraft missions in the seventies uh, we're kind of, uh, you know, putting out. And, and unfortunately, he's the one that put the kibosh on the beer sea. <laughs> okay. okay. It, as a beer drinker, I knew you'd be disappointed in this. Shame, yeah, he's so. a no fun kind of guy. I don't know if we could <laughs> hang out. I don't know. Any, anybody that would go up in the, you should look at the other contraptions of Dolphus uh, ascending into the stratosphere in this rig. I think anybody that would do that is a, is a person well worth having a beer with. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But he he wrote this book. This is a little bit of an aside. He wrote this book called um, it's called Atlas of the Planets. And he's he's the second author. Um, but wow, yeah, written at the Pictomini, and it is absolutely astounding. It just shows the absolute height 
of uh, Antoniades and, and other sketches of the planets uh, and what was known about them going into the very early um, space missions. And it, it actually shows, he actually does this analysis. It is, I, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea about this story. Um, about, uh, I guess it was about 12 years ago, I was, there was a bookstore on my walking route in Ontario. And for whatever reason, they would get in all these really good old astronomy books. And uh, it, was, uh, it was one that was um, sold off from libraries that you could pick up for $5. And uh, I went in and I, I pulled out, finally they had a good copy of it because some of them are in rough shape. I pulled this out and went, wow, this is absolutely one of the best astronomy books I've ever seen. Um, sort of on one page, he'd have Antoniadi's sketches um, right next to um, the actual early spacecraft mission images or, or really high, high-end early uh, mountaintop uh, you know, photographs uh, of, of the planets at, at their best. Uh, and then like an analysis of it. Uh, just truly, truly an awesome, awesome work of both art and science kind of bringing the best of, of both worlds. So I think, I think Dolphus really represents and is sort of uh, less well known than I think he should be um, considering he really bridged that divide between like the real beauty and inspirational art uh, of astronomy and, and grounding it, uh, you know, sort of in, in the modern science. So anyway, <laughs> that's sort of my bit on, on kind of like the history of, of what we see on Mars, but regardless of what we see, we don't see any canals there, do we? <laughs> no, no. And, and it's interesting that that's maybe one of the most popular uh, you know, feature, like feature, like observational feature to, to see, um, even though it doesn't exist. But I think if, if people hear about Mars and they have some knowledge of uh, astronomy or the history of astronomy, they're familiar with the canals. And yeah. uh, I'm, I think it's a fascinating history. Um, and, and then if you think about what, what those canals or perceived observation of the canals, what that has spun off into like pop culture, uh, over time is, is really phenomenal. Um, you know, with war of the war of the worlds uh, or is that it? War? Yep. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it all originates back to the, Hey, like this is a very earth like place and there's, you know, streets made by intelligent people. And yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Sort of in the end, those, those early features and, and the features we see today, are really just um, light and dark zones um, that if you actually were kind of to zoom way in, you, you would see that they're, you know, craters or chains or, or uh, you know, areas where the dust have just kind of sort of sifted around uh, a little bit. But there are, there are some interesting uh, works. I think uh, Dolphus's uh, Atlas of the Planets um, is definitely worth getting. Uh, you can pick it up used. It must have been used maybe as a textbook or something because you can find it. It's it's out there. It's super easy to find. I think it's an amazing work. Um, you just have to realize you're not getting like Hubble images of the planets. You're getting the you're getting the synthesis of the very best in astronomical sketching and the very earliest forms of planetary photography. So you have to look at it in that in that context. But in that context, I think it it is. Uh, without compare. Um, and then another great article to read, and this is free, um, is uh, William Sheehan's uh, article, and it's called Mars Master of Illusion. 
and it's uh, a PDF that you can just download from the Society for the History of Astronomy. Um, and he goes into great detail in all these, uh, all these sort of early observers and, and what they were seeing and a little bit different take uh, than what we were chatting about here, here today. Um, and it's a little bit more academic than maybe uh, our approach here, here today, but that is definitely, definitely well worth uh, a read as well. So I'm not sure what your sort of concluding remarks are, Shane, on, on all of this or what your feedback or thoughts are. Uh, just very interesting, Chris. I always appreciate your knowledge of the, the history of our hobby. And um, there's, there's so much about astronomy that I enjoy. The obvious part is looking through the telescope. But I really enjoy hearing about the evolution of observations and how the science has progressed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we even see it today where, you know, we, we continue to learn about the universe and the solar system and, and really all of the objects up there. Mm -hmm. it's always interesting when we think we know, you know, something about a, you know, a particular aspect of astronomy and then it's turned upside down with a new discovery. And, uh, you know, I, if I put myself in, you know, the period of some of these observations, like say Lowell's observation of the canals, that would have just been like mind blowing at the time. Mm -hmm. But then also later on when, you know, observations prove that the canals really aren't there, that it's, you know, just like some of these albedo features and that type of, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Just like perception, right? Yep. That um, uh, allows us to, to see some of these things and then we sort of make up some stories around them. I, I think that all is also exciting when you can do uh, some kind of uh, discovery to um, disprove or further what we know about some of these things. So anyway, I'm rambling, but, uh, I appreciated okay. it. It was, uh, no. it was enjoyable and, uh, I hope, I hope the listeners enjoy it too. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate like your insights and that, like for me, for me, these sort of things really satisfy, uh, all of my, all of my curiosities. Um, you know, uh, William Sheehan is, is a psychologist. As, as you know, I, I work in, in the psychology field though, as a, as a technical person. Um, but you know, my, my undergraduate, I have, I have three undergraduate degrees. I have a degree in philosophy. I have a degree in psychology. And I have a degree in history. So when we start talking about like the illusion of Mars sort of through time, you know, from the perspective of human perception and, and, and the mind and psychology, this really ticks all the boxes for my academic interests. So, <laughs> so I really yeah. quite love it. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Shane, uh, unless you have anything else to add, we can uh, cut the cord here. Yeah, agreed. agreed. All right. So how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. You can leave uh, comments or feedback on most of the podcasting apps out there. Or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we did a mailbag episode where we uh, listed mm -hmm. a bunch of listener questions. And, and I think and we've had a few questions. Yeah, I think we've had a few questions since then even. Yeah. So I think the plan will be, uh, you know, if we get an email, we reply to them fairly quickly and we we'll yeah. provide, you know, whatever answers we can at that point. Mm -hmm. But what we will also do is kind of queue up a few of these until we have enough to do an episode on. And then we'll, uh, we'll do another mailbag episode where we talk about the questions and some of our answers. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Yeah, right on. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. And thank you to everybody for listening.